Hello and welcome to the second installment of the Mezzanine Podcast. Here, I sit down with my research partner, Ella Blake. Hello! And Professor Leon Balance. Professor Leon Balance is the Pat and Joe Zerdiaga Chair in Theoretical Physics at the Kavli Institute of Theoretical Physics at UC Santa Barbara. Today, we talk with him about various topics in material science, everything from superconductors to quantum spin liquids. I hope you enjoy. All right. We're currently uh, in the Phoenix airport at the moment. At a ah, okay. Long way over. But anyways, so uh, I guess, yeah, we had some like more specific questions, but it's not... It'd also be cool to just talk about general stuff. So we're wondering, like, maybe when you thought you'd first start getting into physics. Like, I don't know whether it was at a young age or uh, something along those lines. Well, I mean, there have been different points. I guess as a kid, I liked science a lot. Um, my uh, parents got me this series of books called, like, the How, Why, and Wonder books of science. There were these little thin like thin paperback books, but, you know, half pictures and half words and all sorts of cool stuff. I don't know. I mean, it was any kind of science at that point, you know, uh, of course you like the spectacular things like astro astronomy and volcanoes and all this stuff. And at some point I learned about elementary particles and that sounded pretty cool. Um, then I don't know, for a while I got older, I, I think in high school, I chemistry was more accessible. I kind of was a little more into that. Um, and then I got to college and college level physics was uh, was kind of eye-opening for me because it was, uh, yeah, I found it just very clean somehow, uh, very beautiful. Um, you could start with very limited amount of knowledge, you know, uh, just a few principles and get really far. And, uh, and it came kind of easily. Um, and I think my father supported me too. He was a, he was a physics major as an undergrad, although he became an engineer. So I think he was kind of happy when I when I went that direction. And like, was there ever like a, a fork in the road where you chose to gravitate more towards theory or more towards materials or anything more specific to what you, you study now? Uh, well, a few. Um, so I, as an undergraduate, I tried working in a lab and I was miserable. Like I was made a lot of mistakes and broke some things and uh, I got scared of it. Uh, I think it, the theory just came a lot more easily. Um, uh, I didn't really decide what kind of theory until graduate school. Um, I think up until undergrad, I felt like everything was, was pretty neat. Um, and uh, I think I probably thought I was more interested in doing fundamental particle physics or gravity or something like that. And then I got to graduate school and I saw how much math was involved in that. And uh, that kind of scared me off. Uh, and I, I, I like I found kind of a middle ground. I really liked statistical physics um, in graduate school. I thought, again, that was somehow very general and beautiful. Um, I had a kind of still a reasonable amount of theoretical meat or new concepts and things. So that that, that kind of decided me. Um, materials really came later. I, I was still doing, you know, relatively formal stuff as a theorist. But uh, I don't know. I think that takes, at least for me, that took more maturity. I don't, I don't think that's uh, so natural for a theoretically minded person to, to be interested in you know, kind of the dirty details of, of materials, but uh, uh, 
some point that was maybe already I was a faculty I think when I when I really kind of made that switch uh some point I'd been doing theory you know probably for you know five six years uh no more than that I guess five years in graduate school it's more like eight nine years or something and uh I thought to myself you know what am I doing theory of uh <laughs> I got to be a little bit intellectually honest and and try to understand what I'm what I'm really supposedly working on that was a deliberate decision yeah. so did that I don't know how well you can hear me but did that yeah, kind of get you perfectly. into um I saw that you had done some work at Bell Labs mm -hmm. so is that how did that transition I guess that was probably post graduate school obviously. yeah that was kind of around the same time uh that was part of it uh <laughs> I was at Bell Labs only there for a year but um it was uh, that place had a real environment of trying to uh, bring theorists and experimentalists very close together, um, and uh, I I appreciated that I wasn't quite there. there that was a bit of an education for me. Uh, Could you speak to and maybe this is a silly question. I'm I'm going into my sophomore year, so I haven't taken a lot of like uh, more theoretical physics classes yet. She's going to be a senior, so maybe she knows more, but. When mm -hmm. I hear like theoretical physicists, like it's something I've heard about since I was little. I mean, you read the popular science books, but what does it mean to like practice theoretical physics or like do it as a profession? Like maybe it depends what subfield you're in, but maybe on a, on a daily basis, like, you know, you have like people writing equations on chalkboards or something, but yeah, pretty, like, much. What is, what, uh, pretty much. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I mean, doing any type of research is uh, it's just a very different experience than coursework period. I mean, uh, you know, you get trained for, you know, four years of undergraduate and first couple of years probably of graduate school is mostly solving problems. You know, the problems get harder and harder and you're learning kind of the framework, but the questions are really posed to you, you know, whereas uh, doing any kind of research, whether it's theory or experiment, the, the kind of first thing you have to do and probably the most important thing is to try to figure out what the problem is, ask what, what are the questions you want to ask, um, and how should you approach it? Um, and I think that's even more true in theory than in experiment where experiment, typically experimentalist specializes in some technique. Uh, so they'll have some physical apparatus and some technique that they use and they're gonna try to apply that where they can. Um, the theorist largely is totally unconstrained. So you have to somehow identify what you wanna do. Um, and what the what the right approach is. So, uh, you know, that's a lot of just thinking and talking. Discussion is really important. You have this picture. I don't know. I had this kind of idealized picture of uh, Albert Einstein in the patent office. You know, kind of thinking to himself, having deep thoughts, and inventing relativity. But uh, theorists are not alone that much. Uh, you 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 spend a lot of time discussing, working together with people on a blackboard or on, on a pad of paper or just talking, um, uh, maybe writing code on the computer, going to meetings, um, talking to your experimentalist friends in the lab to see what the latest new results are, or get a sanity check. Um, uh, but yeah, um, I don't know if that, no, yeah. that helps. Is that kind of answer? Yeah, that illustrates it a little bit. And then I guess that kind of leads into, like, I know we already talked a little bit about Bell Labs and you were there for a year, but 
what what it's like to work as maybe a physicist in academia versus in maybe a private lab or some other, I guess, job? Yeah, I don't know that Bell Labs is a very good example in that sense because it was almost like an academic environment, um, a little different. Uh, the But we were not very driven there to work on a product. It was really a research lab. Um, uh, I mean, it is different in that there are almost no students. It's all kind of postdoc and older scientists um, and working together. Uh, um, it's uh, it's less independent in a company. You know, there's any company, even Bell Labs, where you're pretty independent. You know, you're uh, you're in you're in some kind of corporate hierarchy. You know, and and somebody is your boss, and they're going to conduct periodic performance evaluations, and they might even be interested. You know, you're constantly thinking a little bit in the back of your mind: is there something that could uh, benefit the company? Can this spin off into some tech, or uh, could they patent this? You know, we we patented something while I was there, some idea which you wouldn't have thought doing. Thinking about materials, we patented something for cell phone transmission. Um, but uh, so that's a bit different. Um, now most companies are going to be more more like that. You'll be on a team, and there'll be deadlines and. Um, uh, in academia, you're really your own boss, um, and there's nobody to answer to. I mean, sure, I'm in a department or an institute, and in, in principle, there's somebody above me, but they don't really evaluate me directly. Um, you really choose what you want to do, and it's, uh, you know, in some sense, you have to sell it to the government or private foundations or something to give you financial support for your research, although as a theorist, in principle, you you could work with just a pen and paper and, and the university will provide that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, I think what I like best about the university is the independence, but also that you do have uh, students that's somehow, it's very, uh, uh, it's very stimulating to have young people around, undergrads and grads, and they're, they're moving through, you know, it's never the same people. You wait, you know, three or four years, it's there'll be a whole new group of people around. That's that's not the case in the company. So, um, it's it's uh, yeah, you have to kind of always be on your feet. Uh, in a, in a universe. I guess uh, I guess we could now move on to like where we found you. Um, we were notified that we might be sent some samples that would be quantum spin liquid candidates. Um, we haven't received them. But we like went in and did like a bunch, try to get some background. We're just undergrads. Like we're just like, we're doing the measurements, but it'd be cool to know like what we're working with. So we like yeah. came across some of your videos and stuff. And that's kind of how we tracked you down. But I guess maybe if anybody ends up listening to this that hasn't ever heard of quantum spin liquids, could you give like a brief whirlwind intro into what they are? Mm, okay. Uh, starting from nothing, it's a little challenging. Yeah, but okay, so, you know, you have to know what a, uh, what a magnet is. Okay, so everybody knows what a magnet is. It sticks on their fridge, right? You guys know. Um, but, uh, you know, magnets are made up of uh, little electron spins. Um, and each electron has is like a tiny bar magnet. And in a, in, a, in a magnet that sticks to your fridge, those little bar magnets all line up 
so that the, the total uh, magnetization adds and it, it uh, becomes something macroscopic that will uh, you know attract a piece of iron and you can do all the experiments that you do as a as a elementary school or high school kid with um, but those electron spins they can do a lot of other things um, in a actually the magnets that sit to your fridge, you know, which people knew about for thousands of years, uh, they're the anomaly. Most magnetic materials are, are what are called antiferromagnets, where these little uh, electron-sized magnets, uh, they align, but but not all pointing in the same direction. They, they freeze at some kind of, at below some temperature, they align in some way, for example, half pointing up and half pointing down. That's the, that's the standard antiferromagnet. Uh, that's much more common, probably a thousand times more common than ferromagnets. Um, uh, but because they don't, the magnets don't add up, they're actually much harder to detect. You know, maybe in your lab, you have ways of detecting them, um, but it wasn't really proven until the 1950s that, that antiferromagnets existed, even though ancient Greeks knew about uh, kitchen you know, bar magnets. Um, uh, so a quantum spin liquid is, is even more weird than that. Um, in a quantum spin liquid, these little bar magnets don't point in any fixed position. Uh, they uh, they do what quantum mechanics allows them to do, which is to be in more than one state at once. Um, and uh, uh, this is a it is due to a couple of properties of quantum physics. Uh, one of them is called quantum superposition, where uh, uh, according to the rules of quantum mechanics, which usually governs very small things. Uh, an object can be in more than one classical state at the same time. They can be, let's say, 50% probability that the spin is up and 50% probability that the spin is down. Um, and quantum mechanics uh, makes it even a little richer than that in that uh, it's uh, we don't really work with probabilities. You work with something called amplitudes, which uh, uh, You've probably heard about, but maybe you haven't yet, I guess, based on where you are in college. She gave me a uh, whirlwind, actually, introduction on that on the plane ride over here, actually. Nice. She's like, you might, you might want to hear this. Yeah. Um, so that's called quantum superposition. Um, that's already strange. Um, there's another property of quantum mechanics, uh, which is called quantum entanglement, um, which is that... Uh, uh, we can actually uh, form quantum states by superposition, where uh, uh, where the outcome of a, of a measurement in in one position uh, of one object, let's say one spin, affects the outcome of a measurement uh, of another spin, uh, another object. So things are kind of uh, connected in some way, very far apart um, in uh, in space. Um, so this property of quantum entanglement, uh, it, it requires more than one object. You can't talk about entanglement with one spin. You need at least two. Um, it's something uh, which is very unique to quantum mechanics. Um, and it's somehow philosophers argued about it uh, for decades, uh, that uh, it means somehow that in quantum mechanics, the reality isn't local. Um, uh, so not everything about the real world can be seen just by looking at it one one piece at a time you kind of need to see the whole picture sounds a little bit you know religious or philosoph philosophical or something um so this property of quantum mechan 
quantum entanglement is actually useful for various things. People are trying to use it a lot now in, in quantum technologies. Um, it turns out that by making and manipulating these type of entangled quantum states, uh, you can, uh, quantum systems can kind of process information faster or better than classical computers could. Uh, so quantum spin liquid is, is, is so most of the time when people are trying to deal with quantum entanglement in a lab, they're, they're trying very carefully to make it um, artificially entangle uh, some quantum objects like electrons or photons, most commonly, sometimes atoms. Um, uh, and a quantum spin liquid is, is, a, is a kind of material where uh, a lot of this entanglement happens just naturally. Uh, without, without you doing anything, if you just cool down this material to a low enough temperature, it will become very quantum entangled. Um, so in some sense, a quantum spin liquid is kind of a, uh, maybe you could think of it as a sort of resource for various sort of quantum uh, technologies. Um, in principle, but it's something we're more interested, at least I am, less for technology and more for just fundamental physics. How in the world uh, uh, does ordinary matter, ordinary material, uh, become quantum entangled on its own? Um, and the stuff, uh, I didn't really talk about materials, but um, most these the materials that we actually look for quantum spin liquids in are they're they're minerals. They're crystalline minerals, typically, um, and so they're kind of nice rocks that you could hold in your hand. Although the samples are going to be probably teeny tiny uh, most of the time, those new materials are, are hard to come by. Um, and uh, so it's kind of amazing that you could hold this very quantum object in the palm of your hand. And maybe you guys could do measurements on it. Um, uh, it's a very sort of mysterious form of matter. Um, and there's a lot we don't understand about it. Uh, that's what makes it interesting for me as a, as a researcher. Well, in one of your talks, you mentioned that like a key feature were these, these excitations in them. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, like I kind of conceptually could get an intuition around these spin-ons that you described where yeah. there was this breaking of the uh, superposition perhaps, and there's this kind of like hole of some sort can travel around, mm -hmm. but then, um, in your talk in other places, they mentioned like another type of excitation, like visons, and I don't know if they're important to anything, but we really couldn't find anything about them or like get a good grasp of like what they are. And maybe that's because there is no good physical intuition for what they are or how they could move around. But I, I thought I'd ask because it was something we couldn't find. Yeah, okay, now you're getting very, very <laughs> sophisticated. Yes, um, they're important uh, and there is intuition for them, but it's a sort of more developed intuition, I think. Okay. <laughs> Not so easy to, um, to understand the simple picture. So one of the, one of the, the features of uh, quantum mechanics that's very closely related to superposition is, uh, is that there are different representations, uh, different ways of looking at the same quantum state. Um, and, uh, so some may be kind of relatively easy to draw, um, but in another, what we call another basis, where we work with, instead of building things up out of like little fixed spins with fixed orientations, we try to build them up out of sums of quantum states like that. Um, and uh, so the, it turns out this uh, Vison or things like it are 
they're, a, they're an object which is easier to understand in this other basis. Um, uh, it's probably not a very, not a great way to explain it. Let me, let me think if I can, um, I don't know if it will help to visualize, but I can kind of try to explain the fundamental property of them. Um, so in, uh, in quantum mechanics, uh, particles have something called statistics. Uh, so it, the elementary particles in nature that we know, they all come in one of two types. Uh, there are ones called fermions, um, which are like electrons and protons. Um, and there are others called bosons. Uh, photon is an example of that. Um, uh, they behave rather differently. Uh, for example, uh, many bosons can can go into the same quantum state. And this is the, when that happens, uh, a lot of bosons going into the same state. Uh, this is important for a lot of quantum phenomena like uh, lasers or uh, superconductivity, superfluidity. Um, fermions cannot ever go into the same state. Two particles can't go in the same state. Um, and this is actually what stabilizes uh, metals and materials that conduct electricity, for example. Um, uh, those are kind of somewhat practical sounding properties, um, but the basic phenomena uh, about them in quantum mechanics is that uh, if, I, if I have two of these fermions uh, and I slowly bring one uh, into the place of the other, I permute them, uh, I actually, this is a weird thing about quantum mechanics, these particles are what are called identical. Uh, so you can't distinguish the two fermions. I have an electron here, an electron here. I, I can't put any label on these two electrons. The two electrons are always identical. Um, if I interchange them, I actually get back to the same quantum state. Um, so there's somehow not separate states. Uh, but uh, there's this, this, so this is where this fact about in quantum mechanics, you have amplitudes rather than probabilities. You get back to a state which has the uh, opposite amplitude. There's a this thing called the quantum wave function changes its sign when you interchange two fermions. Um, and so, uh, whereas for two bosons, if you exchange them, you also get back to the same state, but no, there's it comes back with the same sign. Uh, in spin liquids, you have something even a little bit like that, but a bit weirder, uh, which is if you take one particle around another particle, the wave function might change sign. Um, and that's what actually happens with this vison and the spin-on. Uh, if I take a, a vison is a particle where if I bring a spin-on around it or vice versa, uh, the wave function changes sign. Um, so that that's a strange thing What's particularly strange about it is that it doesn't really matter how far away the the vison is from the spin-on. I can do this a meter away if I have a meter-sized chunk of material, um, and it, it's the this uh, spin-on I bring around the vison knows that there's a vison in there. Um, so uh, it's uh, that's the basic property. It's a kind of generalization of uh, of this idea of bosons and fermions, generalization of statistics. Um, 
So this strangeness, the theorists, we love strange things. I'm just saying, okay, we get attracted to the most bizarre aspects of, uh, of, of physics. Um, uh, but this property is actually related to uh, all sorts of interesting uh, aspects of computation and topology, you know, interesting math. Um, uh, so this is like, this is the important feature of the Vison that it does this. Uh, it doesn't give you a picture for it, um, but you can imagine the picture must involve signs and amplitudes somehow. And that's why it's hard to make a picture. Um, so these aren't particles. Are these as much particles as like electrons and protons are, but are we talking like the quasi particle where it's like. Right. Okay. So these are what are called, and they're called quasi particles. Um, which means that uh, they are things that behave inside the material just like a particle, uh, but you can't take them out. Right. Okay. So the, the thing which is different about an electron is you can take it out of the solid. Okay. Uh, and in some sense, the electron is like the quasi-particle of our universe. Uh, <laughs> but I have a chunk of material, it's like its own little universe and it has its own quasi-particles inside. That sounds poetic or a little weird, but it's actually really the way theorists think about even fundamental physics of, of our universe. So is um, like a hole traveling in like a semiconductor or something considered a quasi-particle or is that? Absolutely, that's a quasi-particle. You can't take a hole out of a, out of a solid. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. And I guess, I don't, I don't know, if this is probably not your domain of expertise, but um, you know, all the, the theory behind quantum spin liquids, how much of that is measurable? Like what kind of physical characteristics are we looking for? You said that when you cool it down, you see this kind of large scale entanglement. Um, is there a signal to pick up there in some way? Maybe like what type of research is, I, I think we were asked to consider taking specific heat measurements, if I remember correctly. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's correct, mm -hmm. but I'm wondering what kind of signals will these type of materials give off if we can create them somehow and to add on to that like usually when we've done specific heat measurements like that's shown a bump where there's a phase transition of some sort right um and so like maybe to tack on to that like what sort of phase transition would be seen in that sense yeah uh, these are great questions they're in some sense they're like the million dollar questions for this field uh which since it's a million dollar question i must not have an answer or i'd have a million dollars um so uh the, 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 the tricky thing about your question is actually the answer depends on which spin liquid it is. So uh, is it people, most people don't know what a quantum spin liquid is, but a lot of people, when they first hear about it, they, they ask this question. Um, and uh, uh, the reality is there is more than one type of quantum spin liquid and the, the signature will depend on the type that you have. Um, but uh, there are certain types of measurements which help like partially reveal the uh, uh, some of this physics. So um, uh, most quantum spin liquids will not have a phase transition at all, um, but at low temperature, uh, they will have unusual behavior of the entropy uh, with temperature. You can imagine, I told you somehow the spins are not freezing in some particular direction. They're continuing to uh, occupy multiple states even at low temperature. Uh, so quantum spin liquid often will have more entropy uh, than other states of matter. And 
Um, you can learn in thermodynamics that specific heat allows you to measure changes in entropy. Um, so that's one reason why specific heat is a window or heat capacity is a window into this. Um, uh, other types of measurements are specifically to try to look for these uh, strange quasi-particles we were talking about. Uh, so a kind of workhorse experiment is uh, neutron scattering, um, which uh, uh, is, a, is a way to um, try to measure the energy and momentum of excitations inside a, a magnetic solid. Um, or how much you know about that as a technique, but there are, um, so a neutron is a, you know, you know what a neutron is. Neutron has spin one half, um, uh, and it can, you can send a neutron into a material, uh, usually from a reactor, some specialized source. Neutron comes in and it will interact with spins or electrons inside a material. Um, and in particular, the neutron spin can flip from up to down or down to up. Uh, and that, change of angular momentum has to go somewhere. Um, so it, it will go into the spins. Um, at the same time, it transfers energy and momentum. And if you, if you know the energy and momentum of the neutron you sent in and you measure the energy and momentum of the neutron you sent out, then you can deduce how much energy and momentum was transferred. Uh, and so from this, you can do things like measure the energy and to momentum relationship of particles inside the material, you know, like a, an electron, uh, normal particles in non-relativistic physics uh, that you you know study in uh, your first freshman year, they have an energy which is uh, one half mv squared in free space or p squared over two m. So the energy versus momentum is quadratic. Uh, in a solid like a semiconductor, you have electrons and holes which have different dispersion relations. Um, so one can try to learn something about the quasi-particles inside of a material in this way. It's a very rich and powerful tool. Um, so I believe, I think in one of the, I think it was like the Princeton video, mm -hmm. you showed like a, a graph that maybe was elastic neutron scattering. It kind of looked like an inverted parabola. Yes. That was kind of colorful. Yes. <laughs> um, so that's what that was, was the that's, signature of that's, a, yeah, a neutron scattering. That was an inelastic neutron scattering measurement. Inelastic means that the the neutron exchanges energy with the solid. Um, elastic, you learn elastic collision probably in freshman physics is a collision where energy is conserved. Um, uh, so you can do both in, in neutron scattering. They have different purposes, but indeed, yes, that's an example of such a measurement. Um, it produces very big data sets. Um, so they're very rich and uh, requires a lot of analysis, but at the same time is, uh, you know, can reveal exquisite features uh, in, in magnetic systems. So, so that's kind of a workhorse experiment among many other things. Uh, and the answer might be all of the above, but are theorists in this space working on like theorizing new structures for materials or, or like behaviors of existing materials? Um, when, when, and I guess specifically when say, they're interacting. The yeah, okay. All of the above. Um, so, uh, you know, I'd say the overall uh, sense of theorists in this community is we're we're a little frustrated that uh, <laughs> we've been trying so long and not not yet found you know the the perfect example in the laboratory uh, of this. We have uh, 
you know, made a lot of strides, I think, as a community in the past decade or so, but um, uh, not quite there yet. Um, so, uh, you know, it's sort of our job to figure out how to how to get the, the rest of the way. So uh, then there are different ideas. Maybe we just haven't found exactly the right material. We should we should work harder to find a better material. Maybe our materials are fine and we just haven't figured out the exact right experiment to do. Or the theory is wrong and we predicted the wrong things. Uh, uh, so these are hard problems and we approach from many different directions. Um, I also have a question that I was thinking about when you were talking a bit ago about entanglement. Mm -hmm. um, so I had been talking with the professor we actually worked for at Harvey Mudd and uh -huh. he had been talking a little bit about superconductors and talking about Cooper pairs. Yeah. And um, I haven't taken a like solid state course because um, I guess there hasn't really been <laughs> one yet, but sure. um, I just wanted to know, this might not be necessarily something you work with a lot. I just wanted to know like if you could talk a little bit about that because I didn't really understand the explanation the first time around. About Cooper pairs. And oh, about Cooper pairs and yeah, and their purpose in a superconductor. Okay, yeah. It's actually related to something I talked about a, a few minutes ago, these uh, this properties of bosons, that bosons can, many bosons can go into the same state. Um, so, uh, you know, in a, in a centimeter cube chunk of any material, liquid or solid, there is a, an Avogadro number of uh, atoms in there of electrons and atoms. Um, and, uh, you know, in principle, if all those electrons or all those atoms were bosons, they could all go into one quantum state. That's a kind of immense uh, amplification in some sense. You have every electron in the material behaving as one, all doing the same thing. Um, and uh, uh, in, a, in a way, that's what a superconductor is. A superconductor is something where, uh, you know, just by the name, where uh, it conducts very, very well, actually conducts perfectly in the sense that it will carry a electric current without any force applied. Um, uh, so a, a rough way to understand what a superconductor is, is, is it's, a, it's a material where uh, a huge number of electrons are all just acting like one and, and all, all doing the same thing, um, all, all really described by a single quantum state. Uh, the only problem with this is that electrons are not bosons, they're fermions. Um, and so electrons, you can't put, you can't even put two fermions in the same quantum state, much less uh, an Avogadro number 10 to the 23. Okay. Um, but there's a way out, which is that it turns out that if you uh, could combine two fermions and make a little molecule out of them, uh, just the way you make a molecule of hydrogen out of a out of a proton and electron, that little molecule will behave like a boson. Um, so a, a little molecule of two electrons is what's called a Cooper pair. Um, and uh, so if Cooper pairs form, then they can Bose condense. They can do this thing of that's called Bose condensation. I'm sorry, maybe I didn't mention it. You put a lot of bosons in one state, uh, then uh, then you formed a uh, this macroscopic quantum state. And if those bosons are charged, which 
if you put two electrons together, they charge twice an electron, um, then it will be a superconductor. Um, so that's, it's kind of very fundamental to forming superconductors uh, that they have to bind into pairs. Um, Cooper pairs named for Leon Cooper who figured this out. Uh, it's kind of a strange thing because, you know, electrons have charge. And so two electrons with the same charge, they always have the same charge, they repel each other. So why should they bind into a molecule? You know, an atom, it makes sense, proton-electron binding, because they attract. Uh, electrons repel, so it's no reason for them to bind. So why they bind is a tricky question, which we understand sometimes, but not always. Uh, it's weird, but it does happen. Um, only happens at low temperature because, you know, most of the time they're just repelling each other. Uh, um, so that's, uh, the superconductors are some of the most interesting states of matter that you can ever come across and find in, in the lab. Um, uh, and of course they have a lot of applications because you know, being able to run electric currents without uh, supplying power is a pretty amazing thing. Also make great magnets. Um, uh, if you haven't heard about it, there's also a thing called a superfluid, uh, which is, when you start with a, you start with an atom that's a boson rather than rather than electrons. Um, so uh, yeah, a lot of atoms are bosons, um, and they they atoms are neutral. So even if you put all the, a bunch of atoms all in the same quantum state, it won't uh, it won't be a superconductor. It doesn't have any charge, but it it can form a liquid, um, and that liquid will now flow physically flow without uh, without supplying force to it. Uh, so liquid helium is an example of this. Uh, uh, at low temperature, it forms a superfluid, um, does all sorts of crazy things. Uh, so. no, that's really cool. This actually came up because in a lab, we have two superconducting magnets. Yep. Um, and so I was going to, my follow-up was actually well, one, I wanted to know about that, but my follow-up was that, um, I guess, what sort of things do you think would be interesting about a quantum spin liquid at higher fields? Um, mm -hmm. Just because um, I think some of the stuff we've done in the past, just with different materials, have been really interesting um, at higher fields. High meaning, like, I think we can go up to nine Tesla. Right, um, right. So nothing like somewhere like Los Alamos or something, but... Um, That's so still a high there. field. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a so you know magnetic fields are one of the most important probes of of any magnetic material. A quantum spin liquid is no exception. Um, uh, magnetic fields allow you to uh, you know kind of manipulate the energetics of the spins in the material. Um, uh, so uh, a lot of, in a lot of spin liquids, we we think of them as forming in a way a little bit like Cooper pairs that spins, uh, opposite spins form entangled pairs. We talked about entanglement that they can, and if you've seen this Princeton talk, I'm sure there were some drawings in there where you show uh, a pair of up and down spins kind of bound into some object called a, a valence bond pair or a singlet pair. Um, uh, and uh, it's sort of the formation of these uh, entangled pairs that leads eventually to the formation of the spin liquid. So uh, magnetic fields allows you to kind of selectively break up those pairs. 
um, because a magnetic field changes the energy of an upspin and a downspin. Whereas at zero field, they're kind of equivalent. And in a field, they, they're started to be split apart and it becomes harder and harder to form these pairs. Uh, so you can, by, you know, by uh, varying magnetic field, you can uh, kind of probe how strongly these are bound together, break some of them apart and not others, uh, and really change the properties of a, of a quantum spin length. You can do, for example, specific heat measurements in a magnetic field, you really have an opportunity to probe uh, understand how uh, how these spins are forming entangled states and uh, how strong is that? How does it get broken up by field and by temperature? Learn a lot. I mean, yeah, I guess that's exactly what we, we need to know. I mean, we're not like we're going to be writing the, the theoretical paper behind our results, but uh -huh. that was a good background, I think. I don't know. Do you have any more physics-y types of questions? Um, I guess maybe my only other physics-y type question would be that um, I guess like we focused a lot on quantum spin liquids just because that's what we had found and had seen on YouTube. But mm -hmm. um, I don't know if there's other stuff. Presumably, you also are interested in a lot of different lengths. Um, Is there anything else maybe that's like very topical or that you've been working on recently um, that you'd like to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I work on a lot of different things. Uh, Quantum spin liquids is kind of a long-standing uh, interest of mine that I, I've been passionate about for you know, ten plus years. Uh, a lot of these days, there's some new developments like these twisted two D materials. Uh, very interesting uh, in the last two or three years. Um, uh, I could say a little bit about that. I don't know if you've heard. Yeah, of that. sure. I guess what is twisted in this context. Uh, if, Yes, I know it sounds good. Um, <laughs> sounds a little strange. Uh, so uh, you probably heard about graphene. That was it's been big for 20, 30 years, maybe. Um, it's a it's a really two dimensional material. You can take uh, really a. It basically starts from the material in a in pencil lead. Well, this one's not sharpened, so you can't see the lead. But um, and. Uh, material scientists learned how to peel off individual atomic layers of this material, really almost with scotch tape, um, and, and get a single atom thick layer of, uh, of the material comprising uh, pencil lead, which is a, a net of carbon atoms. Um, and uh, for the past 20 plus years, people have been studying these single atomic uh, thickness layers. Um, a couple years ago, um, uh, experimentalists learned how to, how to attach multiple layers one at a time to each other. So you can kind of unstick one layer of this material, put it on a surface, unstick another layer of the same or a different material, and put it down on this one. Uh, but since you're stacking one layer at a time, uh, you can uh, actually add a twist. So you can actually, I mean, physically rotate the second layer before you put it down. Okay. Um, so, you know, in nature, crystals grow in three-dimensional solids in some ordered way, typically. Sometimes they'll have some defects where a layer might be twisted or something. But now it's possible to really control these with exquisite detail down to less than a one degree uh, angular difference. Um, and by, it turns out that for single atomic layer materials, if you 
uh, stack and twist, this difference of half a degree or one degree uh, can completely change the, their electronic properties. Um, and uh, you can use this to, to engineer uh, completely new electronic states of matter. You can turn graphene, which is a kind of bad conductor, uh, into a superconductor or into an insulator, uh, into a magnet. Um, uh, people are now doing it with other two-dimensional materials that that uh, which have the same property that they can be kind of uh, uh, scotch taped one to another. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so it's kind of an exciting area where where uh, in the lab people are actually be able to make really two-dimensional materials and control their properties in this new way via twisting. Um, and so for a theorist, it uh, asks. It opens up a lot of questions. You know, how do you really think about what this twist does to to the electrons in there? Uh, what kind of new states could it create? Could we create spin liquids in this way? Okay, for example, that's uh, something I'm thinking about. Very cool. That's very cool. That actually, I don't know if this is maybe a silly question, I guess, but my roommate um, last summer worked in a engineering lab that worked with. Um, gas synthesized graphene uh -huh. um which she described um as like kind of like the sheets were kind of crumpled i guess mm -hmm. of graphene and i didn't know whether um so i guess you were talking about having flat sheets that you kind of layered and offset and i didn't know if any sort of like flatness or like i guess where very very important yes yeah, yeah. so a lot of care has it I, I say it very flippantly, but this is not so easy to do. Uh, experimentalists had to learn a lot of tricks to figure out how to do this very carefully. Uh, it has to be done in high vacuum, for example. It has to be done without applying too much strain to the material so it crumples up, doesn't crumple up like this. Typically don't start with these kind of like CVD grown materials. Uh, start with a, just a very high quality single crystal, although there are chemistry-based things to try to grow things like this as well. Um, yeah, you don't have a lot of material there. Something is one atom thick, so it's very sensitive. Uh, so it's kind of a tour de force in the lab to be able to produce something that that isn't, uh, that's high enough quality that it's still uh, can, can reproduce results reliably. Okay. Well, I guess I had uh, one more question, which was maybe it's going to sound self-serving. If, if you just had any advice or something, you know, having done physics for a long time, whether it be people in your more specific field of physics or just people pursuing physics, like uh, young people, high school, college age. Uh, <laughs> any advice? I don't know. I'm not sure I should be a role model for anybody. <laughs> um, uh, you know, you should do if you want to do physics, it should be because you love the subject, honestly. I mean, I think in any any uh, kind of research-based uh, or science technology career, you should find something that, you, that you're really passionate about. That makes all the difference. Uh, um, if, if you're interested in, you know, if you got excited about physics because you read popular science articles, uh, don't just bury yourself in the classes, you know, and go out and meet the, you're obviously not doing that because you're working in some lab, you know, go out to a lab and try to actually get your hands on, hands dirty, learn about, you know, what are people really doing in, in research, go take advantage in the, at a university of talking to people, um, 
High school, I don't know. I mean, that depends a lot on your opportunities. Uh, I think it's uh, maybe easy to get uh, bored and numbed by the uh, maybe less than stimulating high school uh, curriculum in science. But, uh, you know, that that's where maybe paying attention to popular uh, popular books and stuff is, is, is worth it. Uh, watch your NOVA programs, et cetera. I don't know. Eventually, it pays off into something interesting. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, for college students, I think you're doing the right thing. Do try to do some research and, and get in get in the lab, meet some professors, find out, find a network of other students who are also excited about the subject. And, uh, there you go, a mentor, a mentor, know, yeah. senior senior. <laughs> <mentor. laughs> yeah, I guess, and maybe a even more self serving question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess, do you have any advice to someone trying to find a graduate school program that they might enjoy? Mm. Um, I guess. Uh, well, I think there are a lot of resources there. I mean, of course, there are rankings and, and but you should, you know, uh, graduate school, it matters a lot more who the individual professors are than it does in undergrad. Uh, I mean, ultimately in grad graduate school is about doing a thesis and it's it's really about working with usually one professor for most of your time um and so you need to try to learn what the opportunities are um and this depends a lot on your own level of how well you know yourself already you know do you know i'd say a lot of undergrads don't really know what field they want to do i mean you're a junior in in college uh You've taken some classes, maybe you've worked in one lab, but you haven't had an opportunity to do theoretical astrophysics, for example. Or um, so you can at best guess. I mean, some people already decide they're passionate about something. If you do, then you have a big advantage. You can actually try to figure out who are people really doing that, and make sure you you apply to places which really which really do the type of science you want. Um, but you know, ultimately. What matters in grad school is uh, who who your advisor is. Are you going to have a good relationship with them? Are they somebody that you can interact with uh, effectively? Who are the other students? Having a great cohort of other students is really good. If you don't know what you want to do, you, then you need a place which has some options. Um, uh, so I don't know. It's a, it's a you know, it's a complicated decision, like many things in life, I guess, that hit you at this stage. Uh, but, you know, nothing is uh, irreversible. So I think it tends to cause a lot of stress, but uh, I don't know. You can you can always change your mind. Uh, um, but, yeah, try to learn about, learn about what places are doing what and visit. Um, All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Uh, my pleasure. Yeah, it's very nice talking to you. Thank you for listening. And now stay tuned for Ella's blooper of the day. It's running right now. You can say multiple things, too. Okay. <laughs> hello. <laughs> Same hello. That's how I say hello. Okay. Hello. How is fire pitch? Hello. No, it sounds like I'm not interested. Uh -huh. Hello. Does that work? Yeah.
You're the last one, please. It's all. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see.